Hey guys, welcome back to DeRezzed on Clownfish TV. This is Neon, and I have a very special guest this week. It's Troy Levitt, Mr. Troy Levitt, who you may recognize his name from very popular video games, including Disney Infinity and Hogwarts Legacy. And he's been kind enough to join us this week to talk about those games, his experience in the industry, and more. Mr. Levitt, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Neon. I'm really happy to be here. So why don't you tell our listeners what it is that you do, how you got into the video game industry and... Uh, yeah, so I guess like I'll, I'll wind the clock way back. Uh, I started in games officially being paid to make games in 1995. So that's kind of when I started, right when the PlayStation 1 came out. Uh, prior to that, I was a gamer and I taught myself programming in high school and that sort of stuff. But when I entered the industry in 1995, it was a high-risk industry then, right? So mm-hmm. a lot of people didn't know what we were doing. We were always trying to get our funding. And I went through like three studios in those first few years uh, being a kind of a writer, designer, sort of thing in those first uh, early days. The first game that I'm credited in is called VR Stalker, and it's for the 3DO. Oh my God, the 3DO, yes, yes yeah. I do. So that's that's where I, that, that, that'll put an idea of when I started officially working in games. Um, and uh, so then what I did over the years is after we went through several like small studios and I worked for Acclaim and Acclaim got, uh, they got killed or whatever, they, they ran out of money. And then I finally joined Avalanche. I joined Avalanche in 2003, which is where I spent the rest of my career from 2003 until I left in 2021. Oh, wow. I didn't realize Avalanche was around that long. Oh, yeah. Avalanche has been around. They passed their their 20-year anniversary while I was there, and they're still going. Yeah. So they they started, I think, 1995 also. the, The studio was formed by like four programmers who left a Salt Lake City studio that was... Uh, that was the Acclaim studio. They were angry with how, you know, things were being run there. So they started their own studio for programmers. And one of the programmers, John Blackburn, is still the head of the studio, you know, 20 something odd years later. So. Oh, wow. That, that's cool. It doesn't happen very often, right? It doesn't. Yeah, it's 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 uh, a, a long time studio in the games industry is pretty rare anymore. Yeah. Yeah, so I think I think we'll hopefully be able to talk about that and kind of the state of uh, you know gaming later on in in the episode. But uh, I want to ask you about one of my favorite family games, which is Disney Infinity. Now, for those of you who are listening who don't know what Disney Infinity is, you were probably living under a rock. It was a, a Toys <laughs> to Life game featuring Disney characters. Uh, think Skylander, but with Mickey and friends and like every other Disney property imaginable, and it was. Fantastic. It was a great game. It was a game that uh, my family and I logged in so many hours, so many hours playing that game. And uh, unfortunately, it was canceled, I believe, uh, prematurely. Uh, there were figures so in I. development. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There were a bunch of figures in development, I guess, and they just yes, like yeah. pulled the plug. So if you can tell me about your involvement, because I know we have a lot of people that listen that are actually, believe it or not, as much as people think that we hate Disney, uh, they're actually big Disney fans. They were fans of Disney Infinity. And if you can give us kind of any inside knowledge into what went into the game and what happened, it would be greatly appreciated. Sure. I, I'll give you maybe a little background on how Disney Infinity got made and uh, why I think it was really something special in the, in the industry at the time. Um, so when uh, when Disney picked us up, it was 2000, actually it was 2005. They picked us up because uh, Avalanche had done the TAC series of games, you know, TAC and the Power of Juju that then were oh, yeah, yeah. Nickelodeon. Yeah. 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 So that was, that was kind of like Avalanche's touch on the radar because they were always doing um, 
licensed games prior to that, but that was an original IP. So Disney bought us with the intent to make some original Disney-based IP, but before we got to do that, they wanted us to do, you know, some of their other licensed IP that they already had. And we started out by working on like Chicken Little, the Chicken Little game and, and some other stuff. And, and what Disney, I think, was surprised by Avalanche's ability to take these properties and turn them into something that felt better than just a licensed product. Yeah. And, and, and so um, like one of the first games we did very early on in a very short time frame was a sequel to the first Chicken Little game called Chicken Little 2. And I was the game director for that. And what happened on that that kind of set Avalanche on a new path is we asked Disney if we could make a new story in their existing universe, right? And usually Disney doesn't let people do yep. this for their video games, right? That you have to fit all of their intellectual property. But, but we convinced them it was kind of a small thing. So we made this, we made this little side game, this ace in action, and it was well received by Disney, uh, I guess, inside of Disney, right? By the, the people, even though it didn't get that well received outside of Disney, right? Outside of Disney, it was just kind of a game that nobody paid any attention to. But what that did is that started this, this process of um, Disney looking to Avalanche to treat their IPs for, you know, going forward. And mm -hmm. that's how we got in with Pixar. And once okay. we started doing Pixar games, we developed a relationship very quickly with Pixar. And the one that really put us on the map was Toy Story 3. So Avalanche made yeah. the Toy Story 3 video game. And there's a lot of open world stuff in, in the Toy Story 3 video game. While we were making that, and we were working with the guys at Pixar, right, to make, make Toy Story 3, the idea came up, hey, wouldn't it be cool if we could make a game that was based just around toys, you know, all the different toys. And it started to percolate in this, this idea of we want to make a game that's based around Disney toys, mm -hmm. um, kind of like Toy Story 3. But at the time, Disney didn't want to do it. They were like, oh, that's too high risk. We don't, you know, they, they, they didn't see the, the promise of it. Then Skylanders came out. And when yes. Skylanders came out, and Disney saw how much money they were making on Skylanders and their figures, they immediately said, hey, why don't you guys make something like Skylanders out there for Avalanche? And that was the impetus. That's what got the whole thing going was the idea that we had on Toy Story 3 plus the proof of Skylanders came together to get the Disney brass to say, maybe we could actually do this like Skylanders. And Pixar, in, in particular, John Lasseter at Pixar backed us. He got That's into cool. that position of saying, in order to make this work, we're going to have to have uh, toys that all look like toys and came from the same universe, right? We can't have like a, a Woody that's really tall, you know, next to something from something like a Mickey Mouse that's really small next mm -hmm. to, you know, Darth Vader or whatever. They all had to have this common sort of, of design. And John Lasseter is the one who pushed Avalanche in the direction of coming up with the figures that you now see of being this like universal, they all look like they, they belong to the same set. And that's really Pixar's influence on Disney Infinity came from the John Lasseter discussions. So that's, that's wow. that Disney Infinity would not have happened without John Lasseter's backing, I guess is a good way to put it, right? That he was the one who helped yeah. us get uh, Avalanche over the hump into making the actual product. Uh, that then, yeah, that's that's awesome. I didn't know that. That's why I'm like, it's, I didn't realize that John Laster was that involved in in Disney Infinity. I thought it was just one of those things where they just kind of had their people pass off these these uh, IP and say, here, just do something with it. You know? Yeah. Um, and I I feel like it's maybe important for people to know that Avalanche and Pixar for a while were very friendly. Right? We were we were sending people back and forth between the studios. Um, in fact, some of our producers that are at Avalanche now or came to Avalanche were former Pixar producers. 
And we've also set some of our people who worked with Avalanche, some of them went hmm. to Pixar, some of them went to Disney Feature Animation. So there's there's cross-pollination with Pixar, which I think was really, really good for the Avalanche mindset because at the time, you know, back when we were making this, Pixar was on top of the world, right? They were making yeah. all the great movies. Everybody wanted to be like Pixar. And so here at Avalanche, the studio in Salt Lake, we now had this in with Pixar who was helping us to make our Disney Infinity uh, that we were developing very authentic. You know, of course, they didn't they didn't actually do any of the development, but right, there right. was a close relationship there. So that that was um, that was what allowed Disney Infinity to get greenlit. Um, and then uh, what happened? Well, I guess it's I think what's cool about Disney Infinity is that almost everything that's of any importance was done right there in that Salt Lake City studio, which means, you know, all the uh, technology behind it was also developed there, too. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the little base that you put stuff on, yeah. the little things you put on, the little RFID chips for the characters, all that was done with the hardware, right? All the sculpts of those little figures, right? Those were all designed by people at Avalanche, too. They didn't go to a toy maker. They had the guys at Avalanche make them because oh, they were... Yeah, and that, that's fascinating, you know, that it wasn't... Yeah, the yeah, that did it. yeah, yeah. Huh. So um, Jeff Bunker, who was the art director of Avalanche, uh, really developed a lot of skills for working with intellectual property at that time because Disney Infinity was trying to bring all these different intellectual properties together. And to me, this is where uh, Avalanche gets its chops to later do Hogwarts Legacy because Avalanche developed this like ability to dig into intellectual property, understand it really, really well, mm -hmm. and then disseminate what's cool about it throughout the studio and then create something that feels authentic to the property, yeah. but still being new. And I think that's what you see in Disney Infinity. When you play Disney Infinity, all the characters feel real, all the mm -hmm. events feel real, like Monsters, Inc. feels like the real place, you know, uh, if you go to the Star Wars things, it feels it feels authentic, but it also feels new. It's all like new stuff. And that was kind of the secret sauce, I think, of, of Disney Infinity was um, it feels right. It feels like a Disney property, but it also feels kind of new and fresh. There are no other games in any of the Disney universe where you can do things like, you know, Darth Vader can force choke Buzz Lightyear. Yeah. Right. That will not <laughs> no, happen right? anywhere else. Right. But But you can oh. do it in Disney Infinity because they allowed us. Um, this this ability to have the toys interact with one another. So so I one of the things I love being an old old school Disney fan is all the Easter eggs that were in, in Disney Infinity. I mean, you had Gus. Yes. Gus. <laughs> Gus in the Main Street Electrical Parade and all these like really obscure, you know, references. And uh, you know, as an old head, I was like, this is amazing because the kids were, you know, they were hooked on the the Pixar characters and you know the Star Wars and all that. And I'm just like I'm tooling around in the main street electrical parade floats. Like, I think that's the best thing ever. And it was, it was cool because like you said, everything felt like it belonged in the same universe. Cause there, there's usually this disconnect with like, Oh God, I'm going to get in so much trouble. But if I, if I would bring up kingdom hearts right. and compare it, it feels like those worlds don't. And of course they have to change the art style of Sora, you know, to match the world. And that's, that's cool. I mean, I, I love kingdom hearts. I'm not saying anything. God forbid I say anything negative about kingdom hearts. <laughs> King, kingdom hearts um, is a great game too. Just it a is a great game, game. Yeah. but uh, you know, it, it does feel like each of those worlds are a separate self-contained thing. Uh, whereas with, like you said, with Disney infinity, it was like, it felt like a uniform world of Disney and kind of like the Disney, I think you'd imagine like, you know, the house of mouse or something like that. We're all, they're all existing in the same universe together, you know? Yeah. That's that, cool. that, 
the Disney Infinity had that toy box, right? Where you could bring in yeah. anything from any of the play sets, put them together, and then you could build your own like games. You could like run around, just screw off, or you could make actual whole scenarios. And for a while, there was even on YouTube a, a toy box TV where mm -hmm. they were featuring some of the best uh, it, toy boxes that people put together, the best games. Uh, John Vignocchi was hosting it, right? Who was one of the uh, PR guys for, for Disney Infinity. And it was like a weekly show. There was like all these viewers. It was very popular. So Disney, I think, was was surprised. In fact, I know they were surprised by how successful the first Disney Infinity was. They didn't have enough figures to meet demand on the first Disney Infinity. I hope that's not NDA trouble, but uh, you know, it's probably okay. Now it's a long time ago. But they they just didn't make enough figures for the first yeah. one, so you couldn't find them. Um, yeah. And and they were they were just blown away by how successful the game was when it came out. Which of course Disney does immediately the next thing. We need a sequel, and we need it fast. Yeah. And so then it was, you know, Disney Infinity two, and then the same thing. That one was pretty successful, but not quite as successful as the first one. They also overproduced figures on Disney Infinity two, so then they ended up with a backlog, right? Which cut into some profits. And then we get to Disney Infinity three. Disney Infinity three doesn't do quite as well as one or two. And that's only three years in, market fatigue sets in, and then you start to hear the discussions about, well, uh, are we going to do a Disney Infinity 4? And, right, and right. So, yeah. And, and to me, I mean, you asked earlier what happened with Disney Infinity, I guess, you know, just to, to jump to the end here. My belief, and based on what I heard from inside Disney Infinity or inside the studio, um, was that all three versions of Disney Infinity actually were profitable and mm -hmm. did pretty well. But they, but the projections were that each one was less profitable than the one prior, and their analysis of the market was like the market is now fatigued. Disney Infinity Four will be a money losing proposition if we make a fourth version. That's my, that's my understanding. Their predictions were we're going to mm. lose money if we go on to make Disney Infinity Four. Um, and so even though some of us were already working on it, they decided that rather than try and put Avalanche to work on something new they would just shut down the whole studio and, and close us out. And that's what they did. They shut us down in 2016 while we were still finishing uh, stuff for Disney Infinity 3. In fact, I was still working on the uh, Finding Dory playset when they announced they were closing the studio. And we still finished that thing out and published Finding Dory, the playset, but they didn't ever tell anybody, you know, that it was it was launched. You can still go buy it, I think, but, but they just never had a launch event for the Finding Dory playset. Yeah, I know, I know that there were uh, websites out there that had uh, supposedly leaked images of figures that were in production or that were planned and, uh, you know, some of the ideas for four that were being kicked around. And I was shocked. I mean, I was really shocked because my understanding was at the time and there were other toy to life games, right? We had mm -hmm. uh, Lego had one and we had, you know, of course, Skylanders. But my understanding was uh, Amiibo was out there, too. Amiibo, Amiibo. Yeah, Amiibo. Yeah. I mean, that's still yeah. that's Nintendo. That's a whole nother a whole nother thing, but but uh, my understanding was it was like the market leader, like Disney Infinity was doing it was gangbusters, yeah. and why? Because you had crossover from from gamers and Disney fans who would collect anything Disney, and uh, it just seemed a very weird decision to me personally that they just said, "Hey, yeah, we're just gonna pull the plug on this," even though we're riding high, you know. It, it's crazy. Most of the folks at the studio felt exactly the same way when they came in and told us because they had this big celebration party for us. Wow, you guys did so great! Yeah, yeah, oh, you made all this money. You guys, you've done three versions of Disney Infinity. The people love it. There's Toy Box TV. All this great. We're gonna shut you down. Oh, and, it blows my mind. 
Oh yeah, and and there were people at the studio who were very upset, very angry. Uh, it kind of turned on a dime, and and uh, and it was rough because you know John Blackburn, who's the head of the studio, had to say, "I've seen the math. I've seen where they get this." Mm -hmm. and he's like, I, "I think that they're actually right with the math that we've actually burned out the 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 market. You know that if we do a Disney Infinity Four, it's unclear if it'll if it'll make its money back." So the way that Disney had set themselves up, they had set themselves up to kick one out mm -hmm. every year. And it was just super high intensity. Yeah. It was very expensive to make all those figures and produce them. They just looked at their fourth version and said, this one's not going to make money. We'll shut everything down. Because, you know, the, the studio is expensive to keep running if you don't. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think people realize how expensive it is to make games. Yeah. I mean, you're talking oh, games crazy and expensive. manufacturing yeah. toys at the same time. So you got two, two problems. It's not just getting the game out there, but you also have to, you know, manufacture and distribute these figures too but uh, i never understood and again this is you know i don't know if you would know or not but i guess from my point of view i'm like well, why could they keep it going and just offer dlc of characters why do we have to make figures why couldn't we say hey there's a new movie coming out 20 bucks download you know all the characters from incredibles 2 or something and and that's a pack right. but we're not going to figure or if we have a figure we might pick one character that's super popular and then the rest of these characters you know, you just download them as, as like DLC. I mean, it seems like that'd be a more economical way to go, but. No, I, I, I think you make some valid points. And I believe that they ran a bunch of scenarios before they decided to, to kill future Disney Infinity products. And it, it was, it was a shock, you know, like, wow. like everybody else was shocked. We were shocked too. We did not see it coming. In fact, I remember I was, I was working on the Finding Dory playset when we got the announcement, but I had already signed up. I was going to be the producer or the, the game director on The Last Jedi, which was going to be in Disney Infinity 4. And so I was signed up to go to Lucasfilm to read the script. But that never happened because, you hmm. know, once they canceled Disney Infinity 4. So that's yeah, that's yeah. that's how in the gun we were. We were we were already getting started on Disney Infinity 4 when they told us and hadn't even finished our Disney Infinity 3 requirements when they closed us down, which was really weird. Um, yeah, yeah. And then everything went to, like, EA. It was just like Bob Iger just decided, as, as I recall... I mean, it's been a while, but he just kind of said, hey, we're just going to outsource everything to EA and call the day. And that's what we're going to do. You know, yeah. uh, this Disney, the way that they're structured, at least in their games division at the time, had so much overhead that uh, it, it made making games internally very expensive for them. Yeah. And so outsourcing, I think, was just their better option at the time. I don't know, you know. I don't know details of, of yeah, the exact yeah. numbers, but I think that's why they said, all right, we'll just, we'll just license and outsource because Disney's always, you know, they're about the bottom line. They were trying yeah, to make their yeah. money. Yeah. That's a real shame. But, uh, you know, you guys did amazing work. Uh, it's such a good game. It still holds up, you know, it still holds up all these years later. Um, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm glad to hear that. I, uh, so I worked on four play sets for Disney Infinity as a game director. Four of them uh, was the Lone Ranger. And yeah. then, and then it was the Avengers, the the main playset mm -hmm. for Disney Infinity Two, and then it was Inside Out with Pixar, and then it was Finding Dory with Pixar. So I did both of those at the end, uh, both for Infinity Three, those last two. And I, I always loved working with Pixar. Whenever we got to work with Pixar, I was like, oh man, this is this is great. I love these guys. So I I have friends that have worked with people at Pixar, and they said that uh, Pixar then was fantastic. Uh, what they're like now, I have I have no idea. I, I can only guess, you know, uh, based on on the headlines I've seen, you know, where they're at right now. But uh, uh, back in the day, I guess it was it was definitely the place to be. Yeah, it was it was um it was really sad because you know John Lasseter got 
basically pushed out over yeah. allegations that, that yeah. I still don't know what was there. I still don't think there was that much. No. But when that happened, I honestly feel like, because that's 2016, I honestly feel like the loss of John Lasseter from Pixar signals a turn in how that and how Pixar started to operate. So, we're, we're, I mean, my personal opinion, uh, we're starting to see the results of that right now at the box yes. office. Uh, we're seeing movies that didn't have his his hand, you know, and, and involved in any way. And uh, we're starting to see the results, which are not good financially. Uh, they're not good critically. Yeah, but it's it's not the same company. They're not producing the same quality of product in my opinion that's my opinion uh not to throw shade at anybody currently working there you know i think if uh you know my personal opinion some of the movies coming out would be fine if they were coming from like uh, illumination or some other studio maybe but uh they just don't have that uh that pixar quality to them and i think people really under underestimated like how much john lasseter brought to the table both with Pixar and with, you know, the Disney animation too. Cause we're, again, we're seeing the results of it. Now these movies, I'm going to be honest, are not as good as they were 10 years ago, but yeah, that's my personal opinion. So no, I, I, I agree. And I'm a, you know, I'm, I'm a supporter of John Lasseter, even in spite of the allegations, because I could never figure out what they were. And that was one of the videos that got me in trouble, you know, as I made a video <sighs> in defense of John Lasseter and then later the, the press picked up. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so that's that's what was weird about it too. I you know because you know we've covered people getting canceled before on the channel. We we talk about it often because sometimes you know sometimes it tracks. It's like okay, this person should whatever, and sometimes it's weird. Like the, the situation with John Lasseter, again, not knowing the details of it, but the fact that he he was allowed to ride out the rest of his contract the way that he was. If he had done something really egregious, in my opinion, Disney would have had him out the door immediately. And they didn't. They're right. like, let him finish it out. We'll just stick him in the corner until the end of the year, you know, and he can do the walk of shame down the hallway on the way out with his stuff. But, uh, you know, and the thing about that, too, is you had a lot of people complain when we went to Skydance, but so many Disney people went to work for him after the fact. You know, if again, if his behavior was that egregious and sometimes people say, hey, this person is a known creep. He's been a creep for years. We know he's a creep. Stay away from him. In the case of John Laster, men and women who worked with him at Disney and Pixar went to work with him at Skydance. Yeah. And I don't think that would be the case if, again, not knowing the situation, not having the inside scoop or whatever. But it just that whole situation to me as an observer was very odd. It was very odd. I, I, I got to meet him several times. In fact, when I was uh, the game director for Cars 2, um, I met him or actually pitched to him frequently, right? I'd have to go out because mm -hmm. Cars, Cars 2 was his baby. And I just developed like a real admiration for him. Like he was really yeah. insightful. He was really good with video games. I mean, surprisingly, he didn't play very much, but he was really yeah. good at analyzing him, looking at him and seeing what you could read. And so you bring in the game and he would like look at what's on the screen and he'd give you all this feedback about the art and what you could see and the characters. And, and you'd be like, oh, wow, this is all great stuff. And it's not, you know, specifically video games. Right. He just had that eye. And so I had this like really high opinion of John Lasseter so that when all those allegations came out, I was like, I cannot believe that, you know, and then you turn out, okay, what are the allegations? Well, there aren't any, you know, like there's no person, there's no lawsuit. It, it turns out it was all just kind of rumor. Like he hugs people too long and he makes people feel uncomfortable. Everybody and, knows that. That's, yeah, that's common knowledge. He's, that's a joke. It's he's a, a hugger. Joke. He's a hugger. He's a hugger. Yeah. 
You know, everybody yeah, he hugged that. me, I, you know, and I was like, sweet. I get hugged from John Lasseter. I love it. You know? <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. Uh, loud shirts yeah. and, and uh, lots of touching. That's uh, that's, that's my understanding, but yeah, I, I, I was for it and you can see it now. I mean, it's just Disney now. I, I think him being ousted the way that he was ousted, it felt like they, they ripped kind of ripped the beating heart out of the creative side of Disney. And I think when they did that, cause you're, again, you're seeing it, in all the other stuff coming out too, because he was in, you know, he was in charge of studios too. So he had a hand in Wreck-It Ralph one and frozen and all that stuff early on. And you know, what they're turning out now is just not even in the same ballpark. And it just feels to me, it just feels like product. And that, that, that kind of signaled, at least from my point of view, again, outside looking in, not knowing him personally, but it kind of signaled the beginning of the end of the Disney that we knew for years into what it has become now, which just feels very sterile and very corporate. Right. And, uh, and, and I, I agree. I think, uh, yeah, modern Disney, the way it is now, well, and it looks like it's paying the price too. Right. Yeah. And, um, they're in big, deep trouble now. What, what they say they lost over, I don't know, a billion dollars, $1.2 billion on their last earnings call. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's bad deep trouble. Yeah. yeah. They're, um, I mean, there's no way to, put a positive spin on it, but people accused us of for years of being like negative about Disney and overly negative or whatever. And we're like, no, we can see the iceberg coming. Like there's a huge iceberg coming. Cause you're starting to see diminishing returns and it's on every front. It's not just, you know, it was the live action movies. Um, it was the animation. It's the theme parks. Now um, they're getting their tails kicked in the theme parks, which is the, the one thing that they always, always came out on top. And now it looks like Universal is going to just completely eat their lunch because they were too busy chasing acquisitions. And like I said, they they stopped being a creative company and they're just chasing the bottom line and they're not even doing that well now. I mean, it's just a series of very, very bad decisions that are all catching up to them, um, which is unfortunate because, I mean, I, I love Disney. I do. I, I, you know, worked on licensed stuff for years. I, you know, my wife and I, it's a huge, it was a huge part of our lives. People think that we hate Disney and we, we don't. You know, I would like to see them course correct if they can. I just don't know if they can at this point. Yeah. So, so when when you were playing uh, Disney Infinity, you were playing it with it was a family game, right? You're playing yeah. it with uh, your kids. How how is it okay to ask? Like, how many kids you have? And yeah, we got two kids, boy and a girl, and oh, uh, they awesome. actually so, we have a we have a gaming channel. Uh, we never played Disney Infinity on it. They were too little uh, when that was really really big. But uh, yeah, we used to play all the time. I, I want you to notice something about all of the starter playsets for Disney Infinity. There's a female character, I guess, in all of them except the uh, first one, because we realized we wanted families to be able to play together. So we'd often think of a family, boy, girl, mom, dad. Let's make sure that we've got a female figure in the in the in the pack for every starter kit. So that's why, like in the Avengers starter, there's Black Widow is there, right? Yeah, so that, yeah. So that, so that if you take it home, you've got you don't feel like you're left out if you're the the you know the daughter in the family. So, you know, uh, I feel like right from the outset, we had this like target idea of let's sell to whole families playing together, mom, dad, son and daughter. Let's make it a game that everybody can can get together. And that's really, I think, what the toy box was trying to be about. And, and yeah. for our family, that that's actually what happened. I mean, we we collected the figures together. We played together. My wife would, you know, if she didn't play, she would watch us play and we were building all kinds of crazy stuff. And uh, the kids were always playing other people's toy boxes. And it was, I mean, it was 
yeah, it was a huge part of our, our family time for, you know, the, the time it was out a couple of years and almost every figure we owned almost every figure. The kids loved it. My daughter, I think Merida was her favorite. She used to play, uh, all the time. And, um, you know, I just, uh, I love the whole concept of it. And it was one of the last games that we played. I think just, we all played together as a family and there aren't a lot of games like that. Now there, there really aren't. Um, yeah, we did uh, Lego star Wars for a while. And then it just started to get kind of silly from my point of view, you know, but, but even that, like my wife didn't want to play. My daughter really didn't want to play either. It was usually me and my son would play, but, but Disney infinity, we all played together and, uh, I wish it was still around. I do. I, or some variation of it, even if it was another IP, just something in that vein. I wish, yeah. I wish we had that again. Yeah, I, I'm friends with a lot of the old Avalanche folks, uh, you know, just on normal social media. And I still see them talking about Disney Infinity now and then, you know, that every now and then you'll see somebody uh, post something about, hey, I, I was playing Disney Infinity over to friend's house. And, and, and I think there's just a general sense of goodwill for everybody who participated in the Disney Infinity project. Like, yeah. I, I haven't heard anybody at the studio, at Avalanche, or even, you know, outside associated with Disney Infinity who has a negative opinion of their time spent working on it, right? Every It was very difficult, it was very intense, but we all felt like what we were doing was a good product for families, very much in line with the Disney property, and it was yeah. very successful. So so there's a real sense of, of accomplishment, I think, inside of Avalanche for having made Disney Infinity, even though outside of the studio, people tend to think of it, oh, it failed. You know, oh, Disney Infinity was crap, you know, it, it choked. And every now and then you'll hear, you'll see people say, what did Avalanche ever do before Hogwarts Legacy? They, they just made a bunch of crappy kids games. And I'm always like, what about Disney Infinity? That was a billion dollar product too, guys. You know? <laughs> yeah, Disney Infinity. And I've actually, I've defended it a couple of times uh, on the channel. Because I said, you know, about Disney shutting down divisions. I said, they'll shut down divisions that are profitable, but not profitable enough. And I always pointed Disney Infinity as being an example of that. Like it, it was a successful, profitable game. It just wasn't, for whatever reason, it didn't math out. It wasn't profitable enough for them. And they thought they would be better off uh, getting rid of it, you know, and uh, really unfortunate though. But uh, yeah, you know, thank you again for your contribution. It was, it was a lot of fun. Our kids had a lot of fun back in the day with it. And uh, you know, I, I, and I'm kind of like, should we dust the Wii off and give it another try? <laughs> I'm like, does it still yeah. work? It's been a while since we've, we've played yeah, it. But, I, um, I, sometimes it still works, but I think once they've dropped all the network support for it, it's, it's hard to get to run sometimes. I, I don't know. I haven't tried it myself in a long time. Yeah. So who knows? Wish you could like mod it or something. Not totally about <laughs> doing that. That would see that would have been awesome if 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 Disney had opened that thing up, right? Like like uh, Roblox or something, and just like let people just freaking run with it. Can you imagine? Well, no, I can imagine some of the stuff that we would have seen. <laughs> yeah, it's not a very good idea, but uh, it would have been fun if we had like a, a modding community. Maybe there is one out there. I just I'm not aware of it. Who knows? Yeah, I, uh, I'm not aware of anything that's going to Disney Infinity either. All but, right. So let's, I guess let's we, we, we can pick it up from there, right? End yeah, let's, let's move yeah. on. We we mourned. We mourned. Uh, we let's, mourned the, the great game. So <laughs> it was a it was a good game. Go check it out. If you guys can check it out. If you haven't played it, go check it out. It's it's good. Or, or uh, just look up like Toy Box TV or something. Yeah, and, and yeah, yeah. It's, it's it's fun. You can see that it, I it was great. I really liked it. We we would have kids out to the studio. We we actually had a few things. And and when you interact with fans and you see them light up and you see them enjoy it, that's why you make games, right? Yeah. At the end of the day. If you're in game development and you're not doing it for the player, 
what are you doing? Get out of game industry and go do something else, right? You need to keep in mind that you're working for players right. and players are your customers. Treat them with kindness and respect. And so when we had people come out to Avalanche and they loved us for it and we love them, it was like, oh, this is this is how the game industry is supposed to be. Players and developers living together, loving each other, yes. learning Thank from you. each other. You know, I, I feel like that's the, the promise of the industry that I feel has kind of been lost in the last decade or so that now it seems like devs and and uh, and and players are often at odds and and that really makes me sad yeah it's it's a strange thing like i i wasn't involved i keep having to remind people like i didn't even know what gamergate was until a couple of years ago so that whole thing like i have no freaking idea but the industry uh, has definitely changed in a lot of ways since i mean i, I look I, I was reading egm when i was a kid I grew up, literally grew up in arcades. Uh, my uncle actually worked for a vending machine company. He used to take me around. I'd, I'd take the quarters out of the machines and stuff. So, I mean, I've been I've been there since the beginning. And uh, freaking love video games. I actually tried out for Sega. I'm going to sketch out at oh, Sega wow. when, I was a, when I was a kid. Yeah, when they were in Redwood City. And uh, I couldn't afford to live in San Francisco, though. So, that's that's why I didn't, I didn't pursue it. But uh, I love video games. And there was always this like camaraderie with like, if you were a gamer, whether you were making games or writing about games or playing games, like we had that in common, right? Everybody had that in common. And, right. and now it just seems so divisive and caustic. And, you know, you've got these like little tribes of people, you know, and, uh, I don't like that. You know, I want it to go back to just games being fun. I want people to just have fun. And, and I'm not really seeing that personally. I'm not seeing it from a lot of the, the bigger studios. I'm seeing it more from like the indie, the indie space that uh, there are people out there just making games, good games, just because they want to make games because it's fun, you know? Yes. Yeah. And, and that's so important. I, I, I really feel like the AAA game industry has kind of lost its way for, you know, they're so expensive. It's just like Hollywood is what it reminds me of. Yeah. Yeah, get no, to this exactly. point where there's just huge budgets and a lot of interference from the overhead and the executives because they're investing so much. They think they always think they know what to do because, you know, but they almost never do because they're rarely game players themselves. And that's yeah. always pressure in game development that the executive teams want their game now. They want it great and they want it, you know, yes, <laughs> they, they want it. They, yeah, it's just it's just insane how how a lot of the decisions about what makes or doesn't make a good game seems to come from people who don't really like games at the top, yeah. right? They, they just don't like money. Um, and so they'll make decisions, I feel, that are poor. Now, fortunately, at Avalanche, I feel like there's been a lot of pushback, but you know, we weren't immune to having a lot of combats with executives all along the way where they would be pushing back to, it's almost always to cheapen the experience and make it faster or make it lighter or whatever they that, that's almost always when an executive comes in they want you to lighten the game and save money you know, yeah. you know what i miss troy i miss i miss a complete game on a cartridge or a disc there yes. was no <laughs> there was no dlc it was like it had to be it had to ship as good as it could be right that was you couldn't fix it later now i i, I feel like triple a titles especially are just rushing to market to get it out there to get the money. And then like, ah, oh, we'll just patch it later. 
patch it later. You know, that's yeah. So this this is a good time. Let's segue into Baldur's Gate three real quick. Because all right, because going on in the industry right now, I've seen these things about um, some of the other developers, I guess. And I don't want to name any names, but that they're complaining that Baldur's Gate three is too ambitious or too big a game. And so that that in the future, have you seen this? No. Oh, yeah, there's there's uh, in fact, it's, I think it's IGN, too good. Wait, it's yeah. I've never heard that complaint. Wait, 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 the, wait, wait. OK, so the game is too good. So the, the bar is going to be raised. Yes. And... Yeah. I, IGN just did a, an article not long ago saying that there are some in uh, some in the AAA industry. I think it's some in Blizzard, Bungie and uh, who else? They say Bethesda or somebody. I might have those wrong, but they were saying um, that we shouldn't expect games of this scope caliber and quality from the triple a studios that Baldur's gate is an anomaly like they're, they're like trying to get they're managing expectations for future games from these other studios that didn't even work on the Baldur's game or the Baldur's uh gate three game right and, and it's very strange i'm over there going guys if they love the game learn from it you know go out and, and figure out what makes yeah. the game great adopt it bring it into your games and make your games that much better live up you know they've raised the bar don't don't beat them up for raising the bar, you know. <laughs> God, that's to insane. try and achieve no. the bar. Yeah. All all I've heard about Baldur's Gate is is bear sex. Lots and lots of bear <laughs> sex. That's, you know, but like the fact that you can have sex with a bear in a game, I guess, is you know just kind of speaks to how ambitious it was. I remember being completely blown away. That, again, this tells people how old I am. But when Ultima Seven came out, and uh, Ultima Seven just blew the freaking roof off of what you could do in a pc rpg like you could do pretty much anything you well for the time you could do for anything time, you could right, yeah. you could think of in this game like i want to make bread i i can just i can just make bread i want to kill that guy i can just kill that guy and then i can make bread but i have to deal with the consequences but i can do it and that was just completely unheard of you know it was so open like people didn't even know how to beat the guy i remember like nobody knew how to beat the game because they're like what do you do it's like well you, you figure it out it's not linear you kind of have to you know there's a story in there somewhere but you gotta figure it out but i have never heard of anyone being like well this games are too good we can't do it we can't you know yeah. just make make shittier games so we feel better about i mean that's some harrison bergeron level crap like you have to make subpar product just so other people feel good about themselves you know yeah it's 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 a very strange reaction that uh that that ballers gate three is being that successful that you've got some developers that are like dissing it for being successful and well liked and i'm like that is the dumbest thing to <laughs> to go after a game oh for. I, I don't really understand it um yeah but anyway so I, 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 I played a little bit of Baldur's Gate 3, so I'm going to learn from it at least. I'm gonna, yeah, yeah, it right. It good, yeah. Be like, okay, we get a couple hundred million dollars and uh, have that five or six years. We can we can do this too. Well, speaking of ambitious, let's, let's can we segue into Hogwarts Legacy? Yeah, let's talk Hogwarts Legacy. Very sure. ambitious title and uh, a lot of unnecessary, I believe unnecessary controversy attached to this title, uh, but it has sold incredibly well incredibly well and it's been very very well received so tell me the story of hogwarts legacy and how you got involved in that sure um so after disney shut down avalanche immediately warner brothers shows up <laughs> on the doorstep knowing that this was a pretty good studio they were looking to expand right. contacted john blackburn right 
and and they started like really quickly trying to resurrect the studio. So people are actually leaving the studio to go home, and they're over trying to make deals to yeah. with Warner Brothers to bring it back alive all at the same time. And it, it took them about six or seven months to get the deal inked, you know. But then Warner Brothers bought uh, the Avalanche Studio. And most of the people who were at Avalanche turned right around and came right back to Warner Brothers. I, I took a while longer because I was making videos at the time. I didn't come back for, for about six, eight months after they were open. But the first thing that, that this is the funniest thing, first thing Avalanche does for their Warner Brothers thing is not Hogwarts Legacy. It's Cars 3. They do a Disney license program for the studio, for the, for the company that just fired them, right? That just shut them down because Warner Brothers is like, well, you guys are paying people to make games, right? Well, this Disney studio just made Cars Two, and Pixar loved it. They would love it if you do Cars Three. So why don't you pay us to make a game for you? And that's exactly what happened: is that Disney paid Warner Brothers to make a game for them with the studio that they had just closed like uh, a year before. So that's it's crazy. isn't that weird? Yeah. See, I didn't realize. <laughs> I th I thought it was the other word. I thought you guys like did. Cars three before the whole no that's that's that, that, wild. That, came, that was completely done under the Warner Brothers auspices, and it was all all inked after the studios were were put back together. So yeah, that was not a that was not a legacy product from Disney. That was all new for Avalanche. Oh wow! And, and they they did it because Pixar liked Cars two so much that Avalanche yeah. had done that they wanted a sequel for their next movie, and so they were like, hey. Let's get Avalanche to do it. We love what they did. Yeah. And money so spends the same, right? Keeps right. keeps people working, right? Yep. So so while that was going on, while they were finishing Cars 3, they, you know, the Warner Brothers team was like, well, what's Avalanche going to work on next? And uh, and there was a lot of discussion about uh, resurrecting or, or bringing the, the Wizarding World into this, right? But they didn't know what studio they were going to put it at. And they, they made kind of a calculated guess that um, Avalanche was probably the best studio for it because of our treatment of intellectual property over at Disney. And they realized, you know, Warner Brothers executive team was smart enough to realize that uh, the treatment of the Wizarding World was really what was going to make or break the next game, right? They, they knew they had to make a high quality game that felt right. And so I think that's why they picked Avalanche was because Avalanche had this history of working on IP and they treated the IPs with respect and had all this, you know, insight into how to work with an intellectual property and keep the the intellectual property holders happy, which is very difficult to do, right? Right. right. And and but Avalanche had this history of doing it with like what like fifty intellectual properties for Disney Infinity. They had done everything, you know. They'd done Star Wars. They had done, mm -hmm. uh, you know, they'd done feature animation. They'd done all that stuff. So that's that's why uh, Hogwarts Legacy got placed at. at the Avalanche studio. Um, but then, of course, there was a lot of discussion about what type of game are we going to make? We knew it was going to be an open world game, but in those first, you know, little bit of development, there was a lot of what exactly is this game going to be? And you can see some of that in the remnants of the game that actually came out. You know, that you can see that it started in one place, kind of evolved over time and, and became the open world RPG that it was. But I think when it started out, it was a little more, I mean, it was it was less aimed at being a traditional RPG, I think, when they started, and in you know a traditional open world RPG. And I think it was a little more on the simulation side, but then they kind of moved as they. If if I were to to say what I feel happened with the Hogwarts Legacy development cycle is that the more that they interacted with players, 
the mm. more that they developed, the more Avalanche recognized they were making what I would call as a mass market open world RPG. Yeah. That they had yeah, so many cool. players in the Wizarding World who hadn't played open world RPGs mm. before, right? But they really wanted to play this version. They had to keep the game simple and as, as accessible as they could. And, and I think some of the criticisms of Hogwarts Legacy when it came out, that the game is uh, a bit oversimplified, you know, that, that, that there's a lot of um, collect-a-thon stuff in there, you know, some of the, and these are valid criticisms. I think a, a kind of legacy from the studio trying to be more mass market and trying to have lots of easy things for people to pick yeah. up on and understand rather than being too hardcore on, on RPG. That's kind of just my opinion of, of how the game evolved over time, from being more hardcore to being more mass market um yeah through that's, development. i mean given the property though that i mean that that's going to happen i mean it's kind of the same with disney infinity where you had you know players picking this game up that maybe never played skylanders or maybe it's the first time they picked up a video game in years but they're they're going to play a disney game with their kids so you know we've got something like harry potter you're going to have a lot of casuals that are just harry potter fans movie fans exactly. or you know fans of the book who are going to pick this game up just because it's Harry Potter, you know? Right. There were there were some people who they had never played a video game before, but by God, they were going to play Hogwarts yeah, Legacy, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. So that that's you know, I I, I wish in something like I understand uh, you know hardcore gaming. I get on people too because there you know a lot of game journalists talk about you know they want things on easy mode, but but there doesn't seem to be a lot of. Uh, I think gaming has become so compartmentalized. Like we don't have a good access point. You know, it's either something's like really kitty. Or it's like, you know, freaking Dark Souls or something. But you don't have a lot of, you know, mass market games that are right in that sweet spot of, you know, this is somebody's first first game. It's not juvenile, but it's it's not the hardest thing ever either, you know. Yeah, yeah. I, I feel that Hogwarts Legacy, as it was released, um, did, did a pretty good job of hitting that sweet spot. At the same time, I think that the criticisms of Hogwarts Legacy about it being kind of shallow and, and uh, being kind of a collect-a-thon and, and, and that sort of stuff are often valid. Like, there's a lot that can be said there. But at the same time, Avalanche's strength was to take an IP, make mm. that IP feel real. And, and I believe that the Hogwarts Legacy game gets bonus points from having such an authentic, real-feeling, wizarding world that I don't think any other studio in the world could have done as well because Avalanche had this understanding of property so deep that when they got onto Hogwarts Legacy the whole studio just like says, all right, we are going to be wizarding world experts. Now yeah. everybody figures yeah. out what house they're in. All the writing team reads all the books again and again and again, they just dive into the lore because they know they're playing to an audience of fans and, and that's their core target. They want to make sure the fans are happy. They're not trying to build their own thing. They're trying to make, you know, something that the fans will appreciate rather than rewrite the wizarding world. Right. And I think you can feel yeah. that, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it, it feels it feels authentic. I mean, it feels uh, you know it's it's visually impressive. I mean, especially on last gen consoles, like how and the heck are they going to pull this off? I was wondering that. How they, and it's they're they're doing it somehow. They're doing it, you know. But it it uh, it really does feel like it belongs. I would say more so than even some of the early Harry Potter games. Can I say that? I don't want to throw shade at, at other people, but uh, yeah, some of the early Harry Potter games were kind of. Eh. Yeah, they're okay, but this this actually feels like like it's pretty authentic, which is good because that's that's one thing you don't see, in my opinion, with uh, people who are caretakers of an IP, is that a lot of times they want to put their own personal spin mm -hmm. on things, and there's a reason that this property has 
the number of fans it has. You know, Harry Potter is a massive, massive success. You don't, you don't break it. You don't decide you're going to rewrite everything. You know, you add to the mythos, but you don't change fundamentally change what makes it work. Right. Yeah. I, I, I feel like, uh, I feel like the studio did a really good job at, at making the player kind of central in the story and then making it feel like it's your own story. And yet it's still, you know, in the, in the Hogwarts legacy universe, like they did a good job. I think Avalanche did a good job, not a perfect job. You know, if there's ever a sequel or if they do anything, I'm sure they'll do a lot better, but, um, for what it was and, and the time frame they had and all the issues they faced, there was a lot of development issues on Hogwarts legacy. It turned out pretty darn good. Right. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm very yeah. pleased with the final product. Um, with the understanding that it could have been better, of course, but yeah. Right. Well, that's everything though, right? I mean, if you're happy yeah. with it, I think, I think anybody who works in any creative industry, like if you're happy with something, if you're happy with it, like you're doing it wrong because you never want to be full. You never want to be satisfied. You always want to do better. You always want to make something better. You always want to beat yourself, you know, uh, do better than you did the last time. And I think, I think when you become complacent, then that's, you know, that's what blows my mind about Baldur's Gate. It's like, oh yeah, this is too good. I'm like, no, no, yeah. that's just the bar has been raised, man. That's, you know, yeah. could you imagine like, hey, Final Fantasy VII came out. Yeah, it's too good. We can't, we can't beat that. It's never going to happen. That's, you know, rain it in square. Don't do that again. Um, so how do you feel now that Hogwarts Legacy is out there and you've seen the reaction to it uh, and you've seen the sales numbers, <laughs> you yeah. know, do you feel uh, given for those of you who don't know, and I don't know how much we want to go into that, given the controversy around it and all of that, do you feel vindicated and somewhat that this game has, has become such a massive success? Yes. Uh, okay. The short answer is yes. I, I feel, I feel, um, I feel like the, the gaming press that came after Hogwarts legacy uh, and via me, right. I was, I was kind of just collateral damage, right. They were, they were going yeah. for Hogwarts legacy. They didn't care about yeah. it. Yeah. No, I, I Troy guy. Yeah. yeah. So they were, they were after Hogwarts legacy and they were trying to hurt its sales. They were trying to damage it because mm -hmm. they wanted, you know, to hurt JK. And, and, um, and so when that failed, when that went, you know, belly up and, and it actually, the game did very, very well. In fact, I think the controversy probably drew more eyes to it. Mm -hmm. it it's hard to say whether it, the, the, the boycott and all the gaming press negativity hurt the game or helped the game. I kind of think it, it helped it, but it also may have, you know, discouraged maybe a million people from playing it. Who would have, I don't know. It's, it's hard to tell, but, um, but I do feel vindicated that the game came out and people realized it was not this nasty game that was yeah, pushing yeah. some, some monstrous agenda about how we're trying to be, you know, anti-Semitic with the goblins or some crazy garbage that they were making up. Yeah. 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 It's, it's, uh, it's just, it came out, it did what it said it was going to do. Most players loved it. You didn't have to know anything about the controversy. You know, it was completely unrelated. So yeah, th there was a real vindication in, especially, <laughs> especially when all those gaming uh, press outlets that said, we're not going to cover the game like the gamer you know, they come out, we're not going to cover this. And then they end up publishing like 15 articles about it anyway, because they just can't, you know, ignore how successful yeah. it was. Yeah. 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 We, uh, we had a little bit of a run in with the editor of the gamer. One of our writers uh, actually wound up on a podcast with Stacy Henley, I think is. Stacey the, uh, Henley, yeah. She, she's the one who called me an uh, alt-right Gamergate troll. Yeah. 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 So one of our writers was on, I believe, a, a BBC podcast and Stacy uh, spoke out of turn 
And uh, the BBC had to apologize on behalf of Stacey Henley. And that was actually the, the episode that had our, our writer, uh, Jake James Lugo. He was, he was on oh, that wow. and he was like, I don't understand. He was debating her and he's like, I don't understand why a person can't just separate the art from the artist and realize even, you know, this game, like JK wasn't, from my understanding, wasn't that involved, heavily involved in it. She, she was not involved at all. Okay. Okay. So, so like, I mean, it was on the record. JK Rowling was not involved in this game at all. It, at all. And, and, and that was, uh, I mean, they said that very clearly all the way along that JK was, so in between JK and Avalanche, and I think this is public knowledge, so I don't think I'm getting in any trouble here, but there's something called the Blair Partnership. The Blair okay. Partnership oversees all of, I think, JK Rowling's Wizarding World properties for authenticity and quality. And, and so they've got like a, a team that just, you know, knows her lore extremely well, knows all the other properties and what's being juggled out there. So we interacted with them. Right? Okay. And we never interacted with JK that I'm aware of. I'm sure hmm. at, at points Blair partnership probably took things back to JK and said, Hey, here's the game. What do you think? And that sort of stuff. But you know, she's not a gamer. She wasn't involved in the story. Right, she wasn't right. involved in the character. She didn't, you know, uh, she, she didn't do anything. She, she wasn't involved in the creation of the castle. There was no JK influence. Avalanche was doing all of that. Right. So so what's interesting about that is, well, there the argument then was, well, she's getting paid every time a copy of this game sells. I'm like, well, she's getting paid every time you buy a butterbeer. She's getting paid every time you go to a universal theme park, even indirectly because they pay her residuals every year for the Wizarding World. So even if you go to Universal and you don't ride a damn thing in the Wizarding World because you're boycotting JK, she's still getting paid. So, you know, I'm saying if you subscribe to HBO Max. You know, right. she's still yeah. Warner Brothers is still paying her. I'm just saying, like, if you're going to do these these mental gymnastics is to try to break this woman who you cannot break. She's one of the wealthiest women in the world. You know, like, I mean, I don't even know what she'd have to do to go broke. Right. You're not going to she's not going to wind up destitute in a box. It's not going to happen. So right. Stop it. Um, you know, it's just the stuff you would have to avoid just to make sure she doesn't get a nickel from it is is pretty astounding. You know, every company associated with her when you've got. All these food companies making Harry Potter tie-in products. You've got toy companies. Lego, why aren't they boycotting Lego? They're making Harry Potter toys. Right, but for some right. reason, the gaming press, and I don't understand this, and is, I, I, I can't wrap my head around it, they zeroed in on the game. I don't know if it's because that's the only thing they feel like they have control over is the game industry. They can't control Lego. They can't control Kellogg's or whoever's making Harry Potter foodstuffs they can't control universal that's too big for them to, to take on but they can try to put some pressure on on uh avalanche or warner brothers yeah i i felt like a lot of folks in the game industry were, were very self-righteous right they put themselves yeah. in this position of, of, of we are better than even the gamers we have to tell people what they can and can't play and what's right and what's wrong for you to play and that to me it felt like almost like this religious approach to it like we're going to come in and tell you what's good and what's bad because we are the elites. You know, we're the, yeah. we're the journalists. We know what's good for you. We know what's bad for you. And that's what it felt to me was going on with Hogwarts legacy is that they were like, well, JK Rowling is so toxic. This is, this is like, she's infecting everything that she's ever touched. It's like purity culture. It's like some sort of, you know, um, like, uh, like, I don't know, like, like almost like a disease or something. Yeah, And so yeah. it's very strange that they were like, you can't have anything to do with her. You have to burn, get rid of all your stuff. And, and, uh, and so to me, that was their motivation was JK was in there 
crosshairs and avalanche was just off to the side here making this game and so they were uh well let's let's try and get at her through the game that's what it feels like and then yeah. let's try and get at her through me right because that was what i got called out for i'm sure that it had you know i or i'm pretty confident it had really nothing to do with my my youtube channel even though they tried to make the news story about my youtube channel but there was there's nothing on those old videos that were really problematic. You, I, I went through those some of those old videos, and I thought your takes were very mild and very tame. Uh, yeah. I think it was just like what what happens with this, and we we've covered this enough. We've been on the receiving end of it too, you know, ourselves. And what usually happens is they they find a target and they will pour through your tweet history. They will. Right pour through your social media. They will find associates. They'll find friends. They look for anything to get you with any technicality to get you with, because you're already guilty. They just have to find the smoking, the smoking gun, you know, and look at what happened to poor uh, Carolyn from limited run games. It took yes, to go yeah. back seven or eight years to find a tweet that wasn't even, I don't think it was a transphobic tweet at all, but they had to go back seven or eight years to find one tweet just to justify the fact that she was in the crosshairs because she followed the wrong people on Twitter. So in, in your case, I believe it was, yeah, they wanted to destroy this game and they thought if they got rid of, you know, one of the big shots over there that they could, they could take it down and it didn't happen. It actually sold more copies. Congratulations, Kotaku. You yeah. helped sell a lot more copies of this game, <laughs> but uh yeah, I, I think you read it right, that, that they were out for the game. And, and the funny thing is, and, and this may be kind of strange, even though I feel like I was kind of sacrificed a bit on the The thing is, is I was not pushed out by WB. Avalanche, I was on good terms. But I had these family issues going on that had already, yeah. you know, I'd already moved to, to Nevada to deal with. And so I, I kind of did like Danny Glover or whatever, you know, like, I'm getting too old for this. I, I don't need yeah. this pressure on, on the game stuff, which was killing me and the stuff with the family. And so I, you know, I, I pulled the ripcord. Sometimes I think now in hindsight, I pulled it too early because things with the family worked out faster than I thought they would. Like about four or five months later, I was like, oh, okay, things are starting to, you know, things, things look okay by that November. But at the time, stuff with my family was so hot that I thought, wow, th this is going to take all my time anyway, yeah. right? There was problems. I mean, I, I've never really said what was going on with my family. It, it was not a physical health in, issue, but it was kind of a mental health issue where I had a family member who was staying with me. And so, you know, it was one of these yeah. difficult situations that, yeah. that I was like, I just, I, I'm going to pull the ripcord and, and bail on this if, uh, if this is how it's going to be for the rest of the development. Because that's what yeah. it looked like at the time. I mean, yeah. And that's the problem. It's like they don't, like, I think, I think the goal, because they know they can't, Nine times out of 10. Now, in some cases, you know, employers will buckle or whatever, but nine times out of 10, it, it's to me, it seems like it's psychological. It's like they know they don't have any real power, but they figure if they wear you down enough, if they make you think the world's out to get you, if they make you think you're an awful person, if they just let you know that they're going to be harassing you at every turn, you know, every time you fire up the computer, there they are. There's yeah, my Twitter lit up. Yeah. Yeah. It, eventually, you know, yeah. eventually you will just give it up and walk away from it. And that's what the goal is, is basically to uh, strong arm you, bully you into shutting up, shutting down. Um, you know, and these people are weak. I mean, we've we've dealt with them for years off and on different different instances. And, um, you know, it's just a lot of it is, you know, they have their reasons. I think there's, uh, you know, you want to talk about, you know, mental problems. I think there are a lot of these people that find targets like that have a lot of their own issues 
that they're dealing with in their own lives and it makes them feel powerful. It makes them feel like they're in control. If they can control somebody, they can't control their own lives, but if they can control somebody else or they can control media or something, then that gives them, that gives them a little bit of power, you know, and they feel better about themselves. Yeah. I, I, I think you're, you're onto something there. I mean, the, the, the thing that triggered my whole debacle was from a, I don't know, some Leroy Jenkins, or I can't remember what his name was, but like he, <laughs> he, he just he tweeted, right? Yeah. I, I don't yeah. remember his name ever. I think it's actually Liam or something, but, but. Oh yeah, he, yeah, yeah. Is that that? Uh, that oh, Liam, Liam Robertson. That, that was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He yeah, sent yeah, like, yeah, yeah. he sent one tweet, yeah. right? It was yeah. one tweet that made me look bad and that's all they took. That, that was the whole thing. They took one tweet and ran. And next yeah, thing I know, that's there are hundred articles about me. I mean, tons of articles. Crazy. But what you're not yeah. seeing, what we figured out is that one tweet is the result of probably months of coordination on a discord somewhere. Really? And these, yes, these were... journalists are all talking to each other, Slack and discord, a lot of them for a lot of different. And I don't think the owners of the publications would be very happy to know that because technically your competitors, you should not be, you know, comparing notes. But when you see coordinated attacks, because we actually have screenshots from, from different attacks on people from different discords. When you see the media go after a target, a lot of, especially in our space, especially like in the nerd space, it's, it is by the time it becomes public, they've already got the game plan laid out in private. They're all coordinating. We saw this with comics people. We've seen it with anime people. It's they already know what they're going to do. You got this person at this publication talking to this person at this public. Okay, so I'm going to I'm going to put this tweet out there. You're going to do an article about this tweet. And then this other person is going to do an article about your article. And we're going to saturate the Google News feed. So when you you Google Troy Levitt, all you're going to see and these people, they do know how to manipulate. I mean, they're not stupid. I mean, they're naive, I think, but they're not stupid. They know how to manipulate Google to some degree. And so they're like, okay, we've manipulated the Google news feed. So when you Google this guy's name, all you're going to see is like 15 different articles and it's going to appear like the entire world hates this guy. When in reality, it might be like three or four people. And again, you might just be collateral damage. It wasn't because of you personally. It was like, no, we had had to take this guy out because we're on a holy crusade against JK Rowling in this game, you know, and we can control video games but we can't control universal and we can't control Lego, but we can sure as hell put some pressure in our space. Now I don't think it's working anymore. I think Hogwarts legacy from, from my point of view, you know, as a guy just that covers this stuff was a huge tipping point where I think it's shown a massive spotlight on just how out of touch petty and caddy. A lot of these, these video game journalists are. And I think it might in some way be inadvertently leading to a lot of the layoffs that we're seeing because mm-hmm. I think there were some outlets that are like, well, we, we refuse to cover this game or we refuse to cover that game. And the publishers are probably like, this is the most popular game on the planet right now. And you're telling me you refuse to, to write cover it. Yeah. What are you to doing? Cover it. Yeah. So all that traffic is gone and the, that traffic is what pays your salaries. So I guess if you're not going to do your damn job, you're out the door because that's right. what we hired you to do is bring traffic to this website. So I think in a roundabout way, uh, it was a huge, cause like right after that, we started seeing a lot of journalists get gone and a lot of these sites being like, yeah, we're going to double down on AI because you know what? The computers don't talk back yet. <laughs> uh, give them well, a few years. It, but You know, I didn't know that they might be coordinating behind the scenes if you have evidence of that, but it does kind of make oh, sense. Yeah, yeah. What my yeah. own experience, I mean, I was, I was surprised at how quick, 
um, like both Anita Sarkeesian and uh, Brianna Wu both had comments about my plight within minutes of like the Kotaku article, right? Yeah. And yeah. I, I like, mean, wow. You know, that was fast. They're <laughs> all, they're all talking to each other there. I'm just saying it's, it's been my experience. I don't know in this particular case, cause I, I don't have any inside knowledge of your situation, but in other situations, I do have screenshots where we had journalists back and forth on discord and it was, you know, planning, you know, we don't like this part. So you have like the journalists and the hangers on and the people that want to be in the industry, whether it's this or animation or comics, and they all kind of get together and they're like, we're going to get rid of this person. And then, you know, and yeah, it's just like clockwork. And then you can see it, all the articles come out, boom, 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 boom. And it's the same, or you've got carpet bagging journalists that, and this happened with a uh, comic skate. We had one guy that was writing for like three different sites and he was writing anti-comics gate articles on like three different sites. So it gave the impression when you Googled what is comics gate, well, oh my God, look at all these websites that are, you know, this is the worst thing ever. There's just a bunch of freaking neo-Nazis because all these Google results say they are right. because they manipulated the feed because Google, how the algorithm works is the more cited an article is, the more authority it has, the higher it ranks in Google news. And if they're all citing each other, you know what I'm saying? It bumps all the negative stuff to the top of the pile. And that's what I believe was going on because you can see it. You see it. When you start to look for it, you start to look for patterns. You start to see, oh, this was obviously coordinated, you know, because it's just, it's it's like clockwork. Here they come. It's like, I call it the chum bucket. Hmm. You know, yeah. you dump the chum bucket and here come the sharks and they're all going to go after this target because they've already decided this person is, is going to get canceled yeah. you know, for whatever reason. Yeah, that that uh that was very much my experience. I went from you know uh, quietly working on a video game for totally haven't forgot about my YouTube channel from you yeah. know, years ago, and then one day I just wake up and there are articles all over, and my Twitter yeah. is lit up, and people are trying to get to me on LinkedIn and on Facebook and everywhere I go, people is like, "Wow, you're you're an awful alt right bigot," and I'm like, "What did I do?" <laughs> yeah, and that's that you made videos and... five years ago. Even the timing of this, I've seen that too. A lot of times it'll happen over a weekend. It'll happen, uh, you know, so first thing Monday morning, the person gets blindsided with a, a cancellation. Like they know how to game the system. I mean, that's one thing. Like if, if these gaming journos can't play video games to save their lives, they can game Google News to make it look like you're the most awful person to ever walk the earth. And uh, I'm sorry you got caught up in that, but it is, uh, yeah, we've been watching this for five or six years now and it's, it's, it's absolutely insidious. And I, I honest to God think this is why uh, so many of these publications are laying off nerd journalists. Basically. I think they know, they know they've got shitty people, but I think they're, they're worried about firing them because they're worried about retaliation. But the flip side is, you know, you take their platform away, you take their power away. What are they going to do? Just freaking tweet? Well, they only want to use Twitter anymore because Elon Musk owns it now. You know, and he, right? Yeah. So it's like you know. But I, I'm telling you, there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes, and you know, it, it, it's it's gross. It's it's high school, middle school shenanigans with real world consequences. But a lot of these people, um, I, I don't think they're living in the real world. I, I really don't. I think to them, it's like they look at people that disagree with them as just, you know, pixels on a screen to, to be gotten rid of, you know, and that's it. Like you, you are a video game villain in their minds. 
right. you're a boss that they got to get rid of to move on to the next level. And yeah, uh, was, they don't view it as like you're, you're destroying an actual person's life. You know, it was, it was very strange to see that happen because you see these reports on you that aren't just aren't true. Right. They just make it yeah. up. They don't care. Like, uh, you know, I was called alt-right a lot. And mm-hmm. I've never considered myself alt-right. You know, I'm centrist libertarian in my political views. And it actually, I actually had on my, you know, on my page, a little political compass. And I'm right there, centrist libertarian. But they don't care. They, you know, the alt-right. And then they call me anti-feminist. And then the next thing I heard was that I was anti-Semitic. And I was like, where did that come from? <laughs> I started seeing people calling me a known anti-Semitic uh, guy and I'm like, wow, that is really crazy. Yeah. That so means that in their circle, you are your uh, known no good Nick. We've been yeah. down this road too. We've had a lot of people, mostly with uh, animation and comics, have tried to say the same things about us. And it's like then people actually look into it, and they're like, these are God, these are like the most boring middle of the road people ever. Like, I guess my thing is like, are you that weak that? somebody with very mild opinions threatens you, you know, but usually it's something bigger, you know, and in your case, it was, they wanted to get rid of the game completely because they, they were on a holy crusade against, you know, JK Rowling. And look, uh, and our, our, our writer, Jake James even brought this up, you know, when he was talking to Stacey Henley, it was like, you don't have to agree with what she said. You know, you don't have to agree with what JK Rowling said, but that doesn't mean you have a right to go out there and tell people they have to boycott this game. There are so many people out there that don't even know what she said. They don't even, they're not perpetually online. You know, they don't even know who wrote Harry Potter. They just know they like Harry Potter books, you know, or they like the movies or whatever, you know? And so you're dragging people, you're asking people to get involved in something that's not, not even their, their fight really. And uh, taking the fun out of the, out of games. And, but. um, um, I was going to, I was going to jump into a little bit of Hogwarts legacy, um, maybe behind the scenes development stuff that, that maybe uh, you guys haven't heard that I thought. Yeah, no, that'd be interesting. Uh, I always have to be careful with NDA, but um, one of the stories that I've kind of wanted to tell, but that I don't know uh, if I could until recently. Now I think that I probably can. Um, so a lot of folks have recently pulled up in Hogwarts legacy that there was a lot of stuff that was cut, right? There was a lot of things in Hogwarts Legacy mm-hmm. that didn't make the final product. And in particular, there's a lot of stuff uh, related around uh, NPC behaviors and the things that they, you know, that the people have discovered that there was a lot more at one point that we were planning to do with, with non-player characters and the interactions. And that's absolutely true. Didn't make it into the, into the final product, you know. Uh, and I think a lot of people are going, well, why? What happened, you know? So, um Here's here's the, the the brief story. So when I when I came back to Avalanche, I came back as a designer, not as producer. I didn't want to be a producer again. Uh, I wanted to get my hands dirty, right? Because as a producer, you're working more in the intelligence side of game development. Uh, I wanted to actually work on things. So I came back as a designer on what was the NPC behaviors team. We were trying to make the NPCs really cool in the game with all of their features. Uh, as we were developing that, and this you can see it in the credits at the very end of the credits. You'll see in loving memory of Dave Ross. Okay. So Dave Ross was a member of the NPC behaviors team. He was an older gentleman and he was a key member of that team and he was killed in a tragic accident. And that destroyed that team. Our little team there that we were working on, um, it, it, uh, it, it just completely uh, wrecked us because, you know, when you've only got five or six people working on, on an idea and one of them gets killed, what are you going to do? That's horrible. 
so it, 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 it actually impacted the game all the way through, in my opinion, because after Dave died and we had to realign that team, I got put into a position of being a producer again now over the NPC behaviors and over the, uh, the, the development of the castle itself. But we were never able, in my opinion, to fully recover from the death of Dave Ross. And so some of the things that we were planning to do in the game never made it in because we were always struggling to catch up with yeah. the, that devastation. I mean, it just destroys a team for months when you lose somebody who's very core. And, and I don't think most people know that, but um, I, I feel like maybe they should know why it says in loving memory of, of Dave Ross at the end of the uh, end of the credits. Oh, I'm so sorry. Was, yeah. No, but... Well, I, nobody's ever, I think, really said that story. Yeah. But it was a, it was one of the many challenges that uh, Hogwarts Legacy faced in its development, and yeah. uh, that's also why I think some of the features that you see, people never know, right? Why isn't this feature in the game? Well, did somebody die? In this case, yes. You know, it's pretty pretty yeah. sad. Yeah, I think I think a lot of fans of of any media, whether it's video games or movies or you know comic books or whatever it is, I don't think they realize how many moving parts. You know, there there are to make something you know especially as massive as you know a triple a game to make that come to life that uh you know so many things can happen and it's almost like a butterfly effect you know if one thing goes wrong it just sets off this chain reaction of of other things that go wrong and maybe things don't turn out quite the way you, you'd hoped you know yeah. uh but uh yeah i mean that's that's a that's a really really i mean it's it's, it's sad i am i'm very sorry but it's a fascinating story you know, for people. Yeah. And, and I'm sure this happens on a lot of other games too, right? That yeah. something really tragic happens and we were making the game in the, in the middle of the pandemic, right? Everybody had to go home for that. And, yeah. and, and there was an earthquake in Salt Lake city, a major earthquake, which oh, yeah. you know, shook things all up and, and uh, caused problems for us too. So, you know, the, the game, I feel like it faced a lot of challenges with JK Rowling with, you know, all these other things going on. And it still it still came out and pleased the fans and it it, mm -hmm. it, uh, it warmed a lot of the hearts of I think the folks at Avalanche. You see a lot of people, a lot of that Avalanche studio was just delighted to see so many fans so happy. Yeah, and, and I I think that was a brilliant move by our PR team. Once they attacked me, right? The PR team at Avalanche said, "Well, we're going to go direct to the fans from here on." They didn't even go to the press anymore, right? They just started going direct with those those videos, they went and talked to, you know, Expecto Go, the Retro Raconteur. They developed this kind of little uh, YouTube community that was promoting Hogwarts Legacy on their behalf instead of talking to the gaming press. And yeah, it's it interesting. Super well, yeah. A lot of people speculated that's what was going on. It, you know, from the outside, it looked like it's like, they're just cutting, they're just cutting the Kotaku's cut and the Polygon's out of yeah. this completely. Like, this is crazy. But then again, that, seemed to be to, to me it seemed to signal an end of of uh reliance on the gaming press because at this point you can go directly to the fans like back in the day egm it was a it was a magazine for fans by fans it was fans talking to other fans you didn't have the, the media getting in between you know until it you know gaming kind of got bigger and became more hollywood you know like you're saying but like i you know i'm wondering are more studios going to look at hogwarts and be like hey we really don't need these guys as much as they think we need them. And we can just go directly to the fandom, you know, through, you know, YouTube or TikTok or podcast yeah, or whatever. I, I sure hope so. You know, uh, I, I feel like the gaming press has 
poisoned the way that fans and developers interact because they're always telling fans what they should think. They're always telling players, this is what you should think about this game because it's socially conscious or whatever. And and we need to get them out of there. And I think fans and developers just talk directly to one another about what yeah. games they like. And, and the gaming press's value to the industry is is very low now, right? I mean, the only thing they're good for is, is announcements. Everything else is just these shallow, opinionated, not very well-investigated sort of reports that are pushing social agendas. And like, I, I don't even read most of the gaming articles anymore. I, I go to YouTubers like you to find out what's going on in the industry because uh, I don't trust the, the gaming press anymore. So. Well, well, thank you, I guess. <laughs> no pressure, <laughs> but like, like we actually, the only reason we go to these websites is to make fun of them. I mean, but I'm going to tell you the <laughs> truth. I've noticed, I've noticed a change in the last um, six or eight months. And I think it's, you know, because it seems like the money's starting to run out you know, on these websites. And uh, it seems like some of the sites are starting to rein it in. And I think they're getting the the order from on high to, to rein it in. Like you're you're actively chasing off the, the readers that we have left. Shut up. You know, if you want to keep your job, shut up. And, uh, you know, the weird thing about it is like any of these journalists, if they hate, and they do seem to really hate YouTubers. Like a lot of these people just loathe people like us. You could have at any point in time, you could have pivoted, pivot the video. You could have pivoted. You could have started your own YouTube channel or started your own podcast or started a, a fanzine or something, you know, but it's so much easier to just take over a warm seat from somebody else, isn't it? And let them pay all the bills and let them build it from the ground up. And, you know, I, I, I personally don't have a lot of respect for that. I think uh, I have more respect again for guys who started their own websites back in the day or started their own channels or started their own zines that turned into, you know, blew up like, you know, EGM or some of the other, you know, uh, you know, uh, gaming zines out there uh, because you had to build it from scratch, you know, and that's how you knew you had something because you built from scratch and you built your audience from scratch. And these, this new breed of like journalists, activists, whatever, they're just like, yeah, I graduated from college. I'm owed a job. I'm owed a platform. And everybody has to listen to me because I've got a journalism degree. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I guess. And then they get rejected by the audience and then they scream at the audience for that. And I'm like, you, you never built that connection, right? Cause people can smell it. You know, gamers can smell it. Geeks can smell. It. We are so used to being the outsiders. Yes. We can tell when people don't like us. Like you get that sixth sense, like they're humoring me. They don't like me very much. I know that feeling. Cause I've, I've been there so many times in my life, you know? Yeah, and uh, I, I, we mentioned Gamergate way back in the beginning, but that's what, to me, Gamergate was. In 2014, when the press dropped all those articles on the exact same day, right? It was yep. all the same day, and they all said about the same thing, which was gamers are dead. Gamers don't need to be your audience. You know, uh, that, that line of press, that, like, attacking your fans has got to be the craziest thing. You know, you know they're attacking their... their it, it, I, I still don't really get what what the point of that was other than it was like a social justice movement. It wasn't about games. It wasn't about fans. It was about pushing some agenda and, and, and they smelled it, right? That's why Gamergate happened yeah. is people, they said, what are you doing? You know? <laughs> Personal opinion. I don't, I don't think it has anything to do with social justice. I, I've been watching like all these cancel. I think it is. The root of it is petty ass jealousy. I think it's you jealousy. really think so. I think that's the root of it. I, th I mean, I think there might be, you know, a little bit of crossover there with politics, whatever. Um, but I think it's jealousy using 
social issues as a reason to get people to listen to you. Like every time you look at somebody getting canceled or you look at like, you know, they go on a bender. Now, now the thing is like, oh, now we got to attack YouTubers. Now I've been covering this. Like you've got, even got Hollywood, the Hollywood unions are attacking YouTubers now because we're, I guess we're scabs because we're still making oh. low budget YouTube videos during the strike. Cause I'm supposed to be on strike too. Right. Even though I'm not right. a member of the union, yeah. right. I'm not an actor. I'm not a member of the union. Well, uh, yeah. And they're I trying to thought of that, but I, yeah. Yeah. So my personal opinion with, the, the gaming journos and the comic book journos and all these people is that they are trying to send a message to the game developers. Don't listen to the fans. Listen to us, make games for us, make games to please us. You have right. to please us. We're the gatekeepers. We're the tastemakers. Just like this happened in comics too. You had people making comics that didn't sell very well, but they wanted to please you know, the, 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 the elites, the tastemakers in the comic book industry. And eventually we saw that, you know, the sales dwindled and the, the general public was just like, what the hell are you doing? You know? Uh, but it's like, Hey, it won awards. It's like, okay, good for you. It won awards. Uh, did it sell well? Did it make its money back? Did it, you know, please gamers? So, I mean, personally, and again, I wasn't there, but just looking at it in hindsight, it really felt to me like it was, a power play to take take the power away from the players and put it in the back pocket of the media because they knew they weren't supposed to be there. They knew they weren't actual gamers. They knew they were fake. And it was like imposter syndrome. So if we get rid of the gamers and we push them out and we have the studios listen to us, then we can tell them, you know, then then we belong here because we have a reason to be here because we get to determine, you know, what makes it to market and what doesn't. And I've seen this time and time and time again. Again, we've seen it in comics. We've seen it in the animation. You have people that know, frankly, jack shit about the industry. They don't really care about the industry they're in. They just want to have control. And they want to be the ones who can put in their Twitter bios I'm the so-and-so with this award and that award, you know, and um, that's what it's about. It's about clout. Yeah, you know, it's ultimately it's about clout and control and feeling important because you know on some level that you're not, that you're not. So how how do you how do you change that? You know, if all these gamers are calling you out, if they actually saw that you were fake, how do you control that? Well, you demonize all the gamers so the studios don't listen to them; they listen to you. You know, and yeah, that, yeah. that that's that that's just my armchair opinion. Because, you know, based on just the stuff we cover and, you know, I'm no psychologist, but it just seems like that has happened time and time again. Because, again, we're seeing it right now with YouTube. YouTubers are awful. YouTubers are the devil. YouTubers need to be, you know, silenced. YouTubers need to be, you know, because we're a threat. We're a threat to mainstream media. We're a threat to Hollywood. We're a threat to the system. We make them look bad because a lot of YouTubers pull bigger numbers than their people that have been properly vetted. So you have to take us out of play, right? If you can't beat them, you have to, but you have to use dirty tricks to do it because in a fair fight, you'll never win. So you have to use dirty tricks to take out your competition. I think it's as simple as that. And then what you do, it's it's a pretty compelling argument. You know, I I can see where you're coming from. So, yeah. So to justify it, you're like, well, we're doing it because of LGBTQ plus rights, you know? So you can't, you can't call us out. We're not being vindictive. We're not being petty. It's not about us. It's not about us at all. It's about all these poor marginalized people, you know? So God forbid, because if you call us out, you're against all these poor marginalized people, but you're actually using, in my opinion, you're using those poor marginalized people to take out your competition. 
Mm. That that's that is what the conclusion I've come to after years of being knee deep in this bullshit. And I think it's ending. I really do think it's ending. Like you, you can fool some of the people some of the time, you know, <laughs> but it's getting the right. point now where everybody's wise to it. And it's the same. It's a very limited, uh, reminds me of the water boy where the guy stole Henry uh, Winkler's playbook, you know, cause he couldn't come up with any plays on his own. They keep playing the same, same place three, four times. You know, it's the same thing. Oh, we're going to coordinate. We're going to get this person canceled. Then we're going to scream misogyny and racism and bigotry and blah, 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 blah. Then when that doesn't work, oh, we're going to unionize. So you can't fire us. And then when that doesn't work, we're going to go out there and scream about how unjust everything is. And the YouTubers are out to get us and the, the gamers are out to get us and everybody's out to get us. I'm like, just, just take the L go get a, <laughs> get a job at fucking Starbucks or whatever, you know, yeah. uh, yeah. I don't know what to tell you. And I, I just, I've, I, I just, I've run out of, you know, at first I was like, well, maybe I'm the bad guy. Maybe it's like, no, no, it's, I, I think people were correct. People, again, nerds are very geeks are very good at smelling bullshit. Cause we have, we have been down this road so many times in our lives. Like we know a fake, we know when somebody's being a fake friend you know, it's like the carry right. syndrome. Like we know when we're being led to slaughter, we know when people are going to drag us out and make fun of us. Uh, so we, we have a sense about these things. And that's what a lot of these people are doing. They don't care about the industry. They don't care about the 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 craft. A lot of them, uh, they just want the clout. They want the platform, and they're losing that. And now they're losing their freaking minds. Oh well, I, I just realized <laughs> it's it, it's getting dark here. Let me turn on the light. Alexa, turn on Troy's light. Well, I don't know if that helped much, but <laughs> oh, there you go. <laughs> I don't have I don't have one of those in my house. I, I refuse. Well, that's good because she might have heard me and might have turned on your light. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> um, well, I guess I guess to to wrap this up, and we and I'm sorry. I mean to take you down, uh, you know, a couple of different rabbit holes here. here oh, it's right. great. I, I I like talking with you. It's great. Oh, hey, thank you. No, it's it's greatly appreciated. I, I've I've been uh, following this situation for a while, and it's great to be able to to talk to you about it. Um, indie game developers. So what do you think of the indie scene right now? Because I'm actually really excited by it. Yeah, I, I, I think the indie scene, in fact, I spend way more time uh, browsing indie games, playing indie games, uh, just being kind of involved in that scene than I do anything AAA. Um, and I think a lot of your good ideas come out of that. So I, I put 130 hours into Marvel's Midnight Suns, um, okay. which was based on uh, Slay the Spire, right? It's basically yeah. Slay the Spire translated or, or, uh, or Monster Train. You know, one of these... Mm independent games that were developed uh, around the card deck building idea. They brought that over to AAA for um, Marvel's Midnight Suns. And I thought they did a great job. And to me, that's what the independent game development community is doing is they're exploring all these cool new ideas. You see all the stuff with like roguelites and card mm -hmm. development and, and things happening first in the indie scene. And then, uh, and then the, the AAA scene picks up and, and pulls some of that stuff out. Like, like uh, Stardew Valley was incredibly successful, oh, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and then there's a lot of that that, that slips into the uh, the triple A scene. And I remember a lot of the guys at Avalanche, we were all playing Stardew Valley for a while. <laughs> you know, it's just uh, it, I think the indie scene is is where the uh, innovation is. The the cool stuff is I thought uh, Hades independently yes. developed game in 2020. Hades best amazing. game of the year. Yeah. Best game of the year in 2020. Yeah. In, independent game. So, yeah, I'm, I'm totally on board with the independent scene. And I've got friends who've who've left the main stream industry and have, have worked in independent games. Um, I don't think any of them have done very well successfully, but they they love the ability to just make what they want 
and see who enjoys it. You know, they're making it for the love of the game. And I think you just get better product. You just get better games when you make it because you love it and you want, you know, to yeah. make something great. Yeah. yeah, I think that's true of anything. I mean, you look at all the things that, that that people love now. I mean, you know, J.K. Rowling. I mean, she didn't write Harry Potter because she wanted to get rich. I mean, she wrote she had a story to tell. I mean, she had no way of knowing she was going to become you know, one of the richest authors yeah, ri- in history. Richer than, you know? the, richer than the, uh, the the King of England. Yeah, right, right. I mean, <laughs> she had no way of knowing that, right? She's like living yeah. in her car or whatever the heck was going on there. And and it's the same with George Lucas. You know, Star Wars. It was a story he wanted to tell, and not a lot of people believed in it. And we see this time and time again, all these things that we take for granted, they're like corporate IP were at one point in time done because somebody just had a story they wanted to tell. They did it because they loved it. It came from the heart, you know, and not to go like sappy or whatever. But then when it became more corporate corporatized, then we see kind of joy get like sucked out of it, you know. And, and uh, you know, I've seen this with a lot of my, my favorite franchises. It, it feels like some of the more recent installments have been, you know, product. Uh, but then you look at like, I love bloodstained the, the eight bit bloodstained games. And I'm like, I would love for Konami to make Castlevania games again, good 2d Castlevania games again, but I don't think that's their priority right now, but you can still get Castlevania adjacent games from people who worked on those games, you know, and it still feels like they actually cared about this. I mean, they wouldn't have done it you know, otherwise, because it's like they could have done anything else, probably made more money than they did off of that. But, but uh, you, you see a lot of this, you see a lot of people that are like, you know, uh, you know, our generation that grew up playing games, and they're like, these are the kinds of games I'd love to see Minecraft. I mean, God, Minecraft's like the biggest thing right. out there. And that was yes. like a guy, yep. a guy, you know, Notch. there he goes, yeah, did did Minecraft, right. And now it's like freaking the biggest thing ever. But you can see the difference between uh, Minecraft under Notch and Minecraft under Microsoft. You know, it is what it I, is. Yeah. I have kind of this, you know, I'll briefly lay out this hypothesis of like three generations that I think have passed through the game industry. So I think the first generation starts in 1975 or about right around then. So this okay. is the Nolan Bushnell era, the, the coin-op era, right? Mm-hmm. And in that era, everybody was a commando. Nobody had done games before, right? So everybody was just trying to figure it out, blowing stuff up as they go, right? And then I think generation two begins in 1995, 20 years later, with the arrival of the PlayStation 1, Mm. home console and that. And this, I think, for the next 20 years or so, I would say is the infantry phase. You got commandos in the first phase, infantry in the second phase. So from 95 until about 2015, that's the era I was in. That's kind of infantry. That's where we're coming into the industry uh, with the intent to make it profitable, the Mm. intent to um, take ground and hold it, you know, like we're building the industry in 95. Like when I joined, it was a very high risk to work in games, right? I was out of jobs all the time, but now, now if you, if you land in a, in a studio, you're into the third phase post 2015, I think we're now in the third phase, which I would say is the police phase, right? So we moved from commandos then to infantry and then to police. It's almost like a war, you know, you started with the commandos right, and then right. went to infantry and now we're in the policing phase where all the wars have been won. The battle is over. Games have taken over the planet, right? Games are now on top. They weren't in 95, but they are now. And, and, uh, and so it's all about policing and maintaining what they've already established. Everybody's gotten kind of conservative in the same way that you might, you know, and all the interesting stuff has moved from AAA yeah. over to the indie where they're willing to take more risks and they're willing to try things and they're making things for the love of the game 
whereas I think a lot of our AAA studios have, have turned into police forces that are just trying to maintain what they've got that have been won by the infantry that came before them, if that makes any sense. Yeah, no, it makes total sense because I'm, I'm kind of seeing that right now, like in every industry, like there, there's more interesting stuff coming out of, uh, you know, independence and, you know, the explosion in crowdfunding and you're seeing very, very cool stuff that wouldn't have existed otherwise if you had to go through, you know, the, the system. But now that you have ac direct access to an audience and you can say, hey, I need a couple hundred thousand dollars to make this game a reality, would you like to see it? You know, and that never would have happened 20, 30 years ago. It was, it was like, no, you had to be like, okay, I got to go through this publisher and I got to pitch it and I got to, right. you know, or I could work on it for two years and then they quietly kill it or whatever. Now it's like, yeah, you want to see this game? Yeah, we'll, we'll make this game. We'll make this game for you uh, if you give us the money to do it. And, and right. that's totally different. That's a game changer for everything, whether it's uh, video games or comic books or animation or toys or, you know, and uh, I think we're seeing a lot of just very, very cool stuff. And I don't think people realize, I mean, for all the complaining that people think we do on the channel, like there's some really cool indie stuff that that's that's being made right now. What, you what do you got your eye on? Tell me something. Oh my God! Why'd you ask me that? Because I just forgot. <laughs> um, I just want to know some cool indie title. That, that no, you. there was one I was looking at the other day, and it slipped my mind. It was a, a Mega Man style game, and uh, it was very cool. And uh, I have it on my Steam list. I can't pull that up without killing the stream yeah. right now. But uh, I know yeah, my my, my son, wish list always has tons of yeah. I, I usually I'll too, see them. Yeah. I'll 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 mark it on my list, and then I'll be like, I don't remember the title of it, but I remember what the concept was. And a lot of them are. Uh, I have them on pre-order and stuff, but there's one that would look really cool. And it was like a very Mega Man adjacent uh, game. But like my son, he loves he's, my son. You know, he, well, he's not a teenager anymore, but, you know, he uh, loved kind of the retro style games. Like he loved Shovel Knight. He played Shovel Knight a oh, lot. Yeah. And, uh, you know, kid, the, the kids, the kids roll in the Undertale, which was kind of, you know, retro themed. And it just seems like you can do a lot with uh, relatively little resources um we played uh oh god what was that one he really liked it forager which i thought was really cool and it was like a, a mashup of like uh minecraft and and uh terraria and it was like uh, had, had like really colorful like zelda type graphics and a lot of just very open-ended games that are being made and uh you know that feel like games not like you're just playing the cinematic but yes, um yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's just a lot of really good stuff. They made tabletop games. I've got I've got so many tabletop games I want to play that just look amazing. And I'm not excited by a lot of the stuff coming out of like Wizards of the Coast now. I'm not excited by the stuff coming out of Activision Blizzard now. But you know, you look at the indie space and we're like, that's where the next big thing is going to be. And I, I want somebody to look at and hopefully avoid a lot of the pitfalls and be like, look, you know. Uh, here's what happens when you sell your baby to some corporation. You know, let's build something up and let's try to keep it. Uh, yeah. And I know this stuff's expensive, but let's try to keep as much control of it as possible. Even if we have to go smaller, even if we grow slower rather than just sell to some corporation that's, that's going to bastardize it, you know? Um, and I'm, I'm hoping whatever the next Minecraft or the next world of Warcraft is that whoever develops that, has the foresight to be like, yeah, we have a game plan and it doesn't involve selling it to EA. <laughs> you know, it, yeah. we're going to build this thing up. We're going to maintain it to the best of our ability ourselves. We'll get funding ourselves and we're just not going to sell it. We're not going to sell it right away because 
you know, we, we know what happens, you know, ask, ask not what happened to Minecraft, you know? Right. Um, right. Or, or George Lucas, what happened to Star yeah. Wars? <laughs> oh, exactly. Exactly. I mean, oh my this, goodness. Yeah. this is, this is the thing. Right. And uh, I think that that is, I would love to see people that create things, hold on to the things that they created because they created them because they love them. And, you know, right. George Lucas, I mean, he was like, Hey, I, I sold my kids. You know, I'm like, well, you don't sell your kids, George. I understand you're upset. I understand the fans piss you off. I understand maybe you don't want to make more movies, but if it, if it meant that much to you, if Star Wars meant that much to you, why the hell did you sell it? Because you knew what was going to happen. Yeah. As soon as you sign that dotted line, it's theirs, man. There's not a damn thing you can do. It doesn't matter what they promised you. It doesn't matter what they – It's it's gone. It is gone. You know, I when I was a teenager, my uh, first car, as beautiful Z28 Camaro, and I spent – Awesome. God, I spent so much time rebuilding that thing. My, so my grandfather had a body shop and I spent probably six or eight. And I just told my wife the story the other day and uh, it was a beautiful car. Six or eight months, every penny I had went into restoring that car. I pulled the dents myself. I did uh, so much of the painting myself and uh, the engine work and, and uh, it was a beautiful car. And I had it senior year of high school and I drove it. Like, it like has a whole personality for you, right? It, so, it did. It, yeah, I got yeah. it. I love that car. I didn't name it or anything, but uh, <laughs> Midnight Blue Metallic. Oh, God. I love that thing. Yeah, that so much. lovely. Yeah. And uh, so when I, I moved back to California, I couldn't, I couldn't take the car with me because it got eight miles to the gallon. <laughs> so 350. I got eight miles to the gallon, yeah. right? So I sold it to a guy. And, uh, you know, it was one of those things where I'm like, you promised me you're going to take care of this car, right? You promised me you're going to take, cause this, this car means like, you don't understand. This is, this is my first car. Like, yeah, I spent, I spent yeah. all of my money on this car and this kills me to sell this car. But if, if you're convinced you're the right person, sure, kid, sure. I'm like, no, like you don't understand. This car is very <laughs> important to me Yeah, and you better not. You better not mess. You just God. And I shed a tear when I sold that damn car. Hmm. Two weeks later, there's a story in a newspaper about some dumbass who got drunk and rolled a Z28 camera. Oh man, you gotta be kidding me. That's <laughs> that guess is... whose car that was. Yeah, guess whose car that was. It got oh. totaled. He was Whatever. fine, I think. Yeah. I was yeah. my wife's like, did he live? I'm like, yo, unfortunately, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I think he did, but all I could do was focus on the picture of my beautiful car that had been destroyed and uh yeah so i sold my baby but i I have a choice because like i said how am i gonna drive that thing to california it got eight miles to the gallon um but uh you know it happens and once you sell your sell your your babies you can't get them back so hopefully hopefully more people have the foresight they can look at this era in gaming and and uh content media and be like yeah let's never sell our stuff to some company because you know be smart like rolling right she still gets a bit of everything she does and she owns it all still oh yeah so so she's been smart part of the reason she's so rich is because she's been so smart absolutely <laughs> uh her and george right well other than selling yeah. to disney but <laughs> before that do you have any advice for any aspiring uh game developers troy before we wrap up yeah um i would say Get out there. So whenever anybody's asked me about joining the industry, I think the best thing you can have on hand is a portfolio of something you've done. It's more important than an education, I think, than like having a degree is to say, here's a game I worked on and here's what it does. So if if you're trying to get into the game industry, I think the the best thing to do is start making a game um, 
like like there are so many tools out there now with game maker or whatever you could you could independently go and, and develop a game and then even if you don't make any money on it even if you don't sell it you'll have the experience of actually trying to build and produce a product a game and that experience is just tremendous in the game industry like don't wait go go build your game as soon as you can like sid meyer used to say you know the the, the creator of the civilization series is that the most important thing in, in developing a successful game is to make it playable as soon as you can even if it's ugly even if it's rough even if it looks horrible because gameplay is what you know game development's all about it's got to be playable before it yeah. looks pretty it's got to be playable before the audio's there you've got to make sure that you're just focused on your gameplay from the start and and it's actually a big problem in AAA because executives want to see pretty cinematics they want to see big yeah. explosions they want to see lots of nice stuff and you bring them a bunch of white boxes with you know things moving around and they they, they can't see the vision of it you know and you have to say no 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 it'll be great uh but you can if you're an indie developer you can say oh you know this little box moving like this is is someday going to be you know a, a silver wizard or something and you can you, you can you can focus on what's important in independent development um and so that that that's my recommendation just start making a game and then build a portfolio of games bring your portfolio if you're trying to look into the the mainstream industry of games that you've worked on or stuff that you've done okay uh, and 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 I'm I'm a little bit shaky on yeah. on going to school for education although like the University of Utah I think up there has a really good games program we took a lot of interns into Hogwarts Legacy from the University of Utah and they were great most of them were really awesome but I don't think that's necessary anymore I, I think you can you can do a lot just hands-on teach yourself and and go yeah make a make a is, is that is that the sort Just of thing you're hoping for yeah, yeah actually no that's cool because that's actually i give uh, now my wife is actually an art teacher and uh you know we talk about you know getting into creative industries and we're even like you know i i don't i hesitate to tell somebody to go to school because especially when you're dealing with the creative industry like you're gonna learn by doing mm -hmm. and technology changes so fast like what you're learning in school, you spent four years learning a program that might not even be used by the time you graduate, you know, or whatever. And, uh, you know, so it's kind of like if you can if you can get in without having the formal training, I mean, it's it's absolutely a bonus. I want to tell people, don't go to college, just go. No, but like I, I, I'm with you on this because there's so many people that have done so many great things in creative industries, whether it's, you know, games or whatever, and they didn't have any formal training or their formal training was in something completely unrelated because a lot of times if you're breaking new ground, who's going to train you how to do that? You know, who's going to train you, especially if you're working with brand new technology, like who's going to train you to do that by the time it gets to the school, it's already decade old. It's technology. already old. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I, I think going to school is, is great if you're going to learn and, and improve your craft, but if you're going there just to get credentialed, yeah. you know, to, to get a degree or to, to learn the classes, I, I think, I think that's a bad move. I, I think uh, I think it's much better to just hands on it, get get in there. Uh, right. John Lasseter used to say, you know, the goal is to fail fast, find yeah. out what your problems are, fail as quickly as you can, and then learn from it. Um, and and I totally agree that you learn by hands on. That's awesome. That's awesome. All right, uh, I think we're gonna wrap this up. It's been it's been almost two hours, but I really appreciate the time, Troy. Thank you so much for coming oh, yeah, on. It's, it's, Thank you for having me on. Again, it's it's great, Neon. I uh, 
they, they, I'd love to come on your show again if you ever want to do it. Absolutely. Just just Absolutely. fun to hang out with somebody who knows a lot about games and talks about this stuff. So. I, I don't know if I know a lot about games, but I like to talk about stuff. Well, uh, so, <laughs> so where, where can people find you now, Troy? Where can they find you online? Well, I'm, I'm pretty quiet. Um, you can still visit my YouTube channel if you want. It's just in my name, Troy Levitt, or I'm on Twitter. Okay. Uh, Troyless True is my Twitter tag, but, you know, just look up Troy Levitt. But I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm retired now. I'm not really active in games or, or anything like that right now. I'm, I'm just kind of following it. I'm playing all the games that I never had a chance to play in the past, trying to get Lucky. better at chess, but I suck. Uh, <laughs> well, I'm 1,300 rating right now on chess, so I've kind of been trying to get better at that. But other than that, you know, I'm, I'm living the retired life. Awesome. I, one of these days, I'm, I'm going to get there. I'm going to get there. One of these, I swear. I keep telling my wife, like one of these days, one of these days we're going to retire. We're going to have free time. Um, but Hey, thank you so much again for coming on guys. Uh, please give us a sub, uh, like, or subscribe wherever you found this podcast. I don't know where all it's going. Uh, it's going to be on Spotify and Amazon and uh, Apple. And uh, of course on YouTube rumble, uh, wherever we post content again. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Mr. Levitt for coming on. We're going to say goodbye for now.